Uh, hey, Crossroads, it's good to see you again. Uh, two weeks in a row in chairs, uh, but it's always a, an opportunity for us to take a little bit different method. And uh, what we're doing today is not new to you because we talk to missionaries as often as we can. Uh, Dan Powell in Lebanon. Uh, we've talked to uh, Gus in Spain. We've talked to um, most recently... Uh, I can't remember the missionaries we talked to. Oh, uh, we had Jordan talk about his ministry in Rome. So we, we've had this experience, and it's something I always want to keep in front of you uh, because I've been praying that uh, lots of you will respond to these uh, examples and opportunities in a very similar way. So I hope that God uses the stories of missionaries who faithfully serve the Lord in their particular context to just poke you enough to say you're at the outset of your adult life, maybe this is what I need to do. So that's that's one reason we're doing this. Uh, Another reason we're doing this is that everybody needs examples that are faithful. And some of you won't swim across a river to get to your church, Uh, but you will be a part of a good faithful church your whole life. And I hope you understand that we are all on the same mission, Uh, different parts of it, some of you holding the rope and supporting, some of you uh, investing and and altering your lifestyle so that you you are directed towards the gospel. And so that's why we do this. So let me introduce you to my friend Paul. Paul, tell us, uh, introduce yourself first off, and tell us uh, kind of what you do big picture, and then we'll get into into the details, and I want people to get to know your heart for the Lord and the work that the Lord's been doing in uh, Africa. Thanks, brother. So good to be. Oh, we're lacking them. We might be lacking. We don't use microphones in our particular village, so thank you for your patience. (laughs) Uh, It's so good to be with you. So great to see a wonderful crowd of Christians singing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, My name is Paul Schleilein, and... um, my wife and I and our eight children have been missionaries to the Tsonga speakers in rural South Africa. Uh, we've been there for 17 years. I grew up in the United States in Wisconsin, uh, the promised land, and uh, went over uh, 17 years ago as a single man. We'll probably get into that more, uh, but we focus primarily on church planting. Uh, I do all of my preaching in the Tsonga language. Uh, We do have a Christian school. Uh, We do have boys camps and other ministries, but our primary emphasis is establishing local churches. So we want to do it old school. We call it slow evangelism. We're not using gimmicks. We're not taking shortcuts. We live with the people uh, we live in a little village called Bokota, which is quite a story how we even got there. Just to give you a little idea, our neighbors cook over an open fire, um, uh, homeschool our children. My wife is amazing, and she was in the front row, but our baby was hungry, so she left. And uh, we come back for furlough every four years, so we were here last in 2019. We come back for a few months, and... Uh, The missionaries of old never came back, so we're very grateful. There it is. Yeah, no, perfect overview, overview, big picture. So we're talking to a guy who's been in ministry in rural South Africa for 
uh, 17 years, who's raised his kids there, his family, uh, along with his dear wife. And you, you get, I don't know if you heard that, but that is eight children. Uh, that's, that's, that's eight. And so they're, they're, they're fully, they're fully committed. And, uh, I think it, the ministry, I want you guys to hear more about it, but I want us to, to go back to the beginning. How did you get there from Wisconsin? a place of cheese curds and badgers and the Packers. So you grew up, uh, was it at an early age that God got a hold of your heart? Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, desire to serve the Lord and where that came from and wrap that into just a story of your own conversion. Grew up in a great Christian home. My parents were converted just a couple of years before I was born. And I went to a Christian school Kindergarten to grade 12, went to Awana. You familiar with Awana here? Big time. Yeah. Approved workmen are not ashamed. I memorized hundreds of verses as a child. I still know all of my verses in the King James. Um, I passed my parents probably early on in Bible understanding just because of what a great privilege I was given, and I stand on their shoulders. Uh, we, we are told today to check your privilege like you're supposed to feel bad about being privileged. Um, we don't feel bad for that. We call it blessing. The Lord blessed the Lord blessed me to be raised in the wealthiest nation in the history of civilization, as with you. The Lord blessed me to be raised uh, by godly parents. The Lord blessed me to go to a Christian school. The Lord blessed me with that. I deserved none of it. It was all of God's grace, but I'm not going to apologize for that. What I am going to do is say, to whom much is given, much is required. So the Lord gave me a tremendous amount of privilege. And now my response to that is not simply to match my parents who grew up in in godless, terrible homes. My response to that is now I stand in their shoulders. My mother asked me when I was four years old what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said I wanted to be a missionary in the woods. I'm not even sure what that meant. But she wrote that down in her diary. And I always had a desire to do something hard for Christ. And uh, even going through uh, high school, college, um, I I had that desire to do missions. And my parents never discouraged me from that. And if I can just say, even to some of the parents that I see here, I found that often it's Christian parents that can be the greatest deterrent Mm. to their children becoming missionaries. We sing the song, give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. And then we say underneath our breath, just as long as it's not my own son. Like send someone else's son. My parents never did that. Uh, I went to the field as a single man, actually. I was there for a couple of years as a single man. My, my parents never discouraged me. They, they, they pushed me uh, towards missions. It makes me think of John Payton, who is the great Uh, missionary to the cannibals of the New Hebrides. And in his early 30s, he was an outstanding evangelist in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, And there was a call for missionaries to go to the cannibals of the South Seas. Now, that that was a terrible word in those days because two decades earlier, there was a man by the name of John Williams. He was a household name. He had gone to Aromanga. He had already been knighted. Uh, He was well-known in Europe. He had written books. He goes to the New Hebrides. One of the islands was Aramanga. They drop the anchor offshore. 
uh, maybe a little bit too confident. He takes a boat to shore, and he's immediately attacked. He's attacked, killed, cooked, and eaten on the shore with the view of the ship, and they have to go back. And that was the story of John Williams. Now, fast forward two decades later, they call for more missionaries to go to this island, and no one goes. They even cast lots, and no one goes. And John Payton says, John Payton calls their bluff, and he says, I'll go. And they say, oh, not you. Like, let's send someone who's not a good speaker, not intelligent, and not a hard worker. Let's send them across the ocean, which has done it a lot in missions today. We can't send our best evangelist. And he said, I'm going, I'm going. They tried to deter him. And he goes back to his home, discouraged. And he tells his parents, the only ones who just encouraged him. And they said, John, it's time for us to tell you this now. When you were born, our firstborn, we laid you on the altar and we dedicated you to missions. Your father always wanted to be a missionary, but for whatever reason, he couldn't be there. Now, he's a stocking manufacturer. He made socks for a living. And he could never go to the mission field, but we said we would consecrate you to the mission field. Go, our son, with our blessing. Like, that's the home I grew up in. And they sped me on my way. And that's, that's how I got ultimately, to the mission field. I love it. And it is a privilege to grow up in a Christian home. And it is, it is a responsibility, like you're saying, to uh, Christian parents to entrust their kids to the Lord. We prayed for those little babies today. And the greatest hope we could ever have for our children is that they would be servants of Christ, that they would serve the Lord Jesus, uh, even giving their lives for him. So Patton wasn't eaten by... Uh, cannibals. Peyton. He he uh, had a wonderful ministry in the New Hebrides, Vanuatu, and you say Pat and I say Peyton. And uh, <laughs> Paul wrote a book about John G. Peyton, George Patton, George John Patton. Peyton. So Saint Augustine, Saint Augustine. One's in heaven, one's in Florida. So <laughs> Paul. You're our special guest, and I'm going to let you pronounce it however you want. Um, so let's let's but let's let's drill into something you're talking about there. Let's talk about your college years because these are uh, these are mostly college students in here. Uh, they're thinking about their future, their career. Uh, the Lord's worked in their heart. They're part of a great church and ministry here. They've got great opportunities on campus to share their faith. Uh, what were you doing in college? Talk about your college years, if you could remember back to kind of your thought process in not just aspiring to missions, but starting to move towards a commitment to missions. Yeah. Uh, I have a motley crew of, um, of education. Uh, I went to uh, college, Bible college, Pensacola Christian College in Florida. Went to seminary at RTS. And then I did further seminary here at the Masters. And then uh, went to a school um, in South Africa as well. And all of those were, um, were very formative uh, in where I am today, different theological perspectives, but I would say all of them love Christ. They would die for inerrancy. Uh, they would die for missions. They would die for evangelism. I was walking across campus uh, one day, and um, my friend was going the other direction in the rain, and he said, hey, there's a missionary from West Africa. I'm going to visit him, and uh, let's go. And I said, well, I don't want to get wet, so I'll follow you. We go to a, a church off campus, 
And I remember sitting in the front of a pickup truck and the missionary's driving and my friend is on the other side and they're talking across from me about going to the mission field that particular summer. I get to the church, I'm sitting in the back with my friend and they introduce us as Paul and Micah who are going to be missionaries in West Africa. And I said, whoa, that's, that's him, that's not me. I just didn't want to get wet and I didn't have an umbrella. Well, before I knew it, I was on a plane. Uh, going to West Africa for a three-week trip, and uh, my, I did not want to go to this particular place. It was in Ghana, West Africa, and my friend was totally sold out, and he said, this is the place I'm going, and I said, this is the place I'm not going, and after three weeks, the last night, we're lying awake, and he says, hey, I have something to tell you, and I say, hey, I have something to tell you, and he says, man, I thought this was the place. This is not the place. This is terrible. And I said, well, I have something to tell you. This place is awesome. I'm coming back. And I went back for three months. And um, <clears throat> uh, I was planning on going to Ghana, West Africa. And I had my bags packed. I had done, I'd raised support. This is fast forwarding about a year. And then suddenly got a phone call. Everything collapsed. The, uh, the board I was with, the missionaries I was going to, everything kind of collapsed. And I had to change gears quickly. And um, I had a friend who was doing missionary work in uh, South Africa, on the, near the border of Zimbabwe and Mozambique, among the Tongas, and I didn't drag my feet. And I said, I need to go somewhere, and that's, that's where I ended up. And so those providences, looking back on your life, a ride in a truck, a conversation in the rain, a short-term uh, trip that turned into something else and redirected, all of that is pretty typical of how our lives work and how God's providence unfolds. Uh, let's talk about your your kind of early years then once you were on the field and what helped you get through those years? What was the encouragements? What were the obstacles? You, you don't land, land in West Africa. You end up with uh, this connection to yeah. in Southern Africa of this rural tribe. Yes. Uh, talk about the status of that tribe when you got there. Give us kind of your, yes. your early years in, in ministry. But, at, by the way, when people ask me, like, how do you know if you're called to missions? Uh, I often say three things. Um, follow wisdom, follow providence, and get busy. I think we find that pattern with the Apostle Paul. So, yes, use wisdom. Use wisdom. Uh, pray about it. Follow counsel. Uh, do research. Uh, don't spin the globe and close your eyes and point. Yes, use wisdom. Uh, do research. Go to Joshua Project. Go to Ethnologue. Uh, ask questions. See where you're gifted. But then second, follow providence. You would be amazed at how many missionaries are not in the place where they expected to be. Uh, Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. He couldn't go there. Paul wanted to go north. He couldn't go there. Where he came from the east, he couldn't go north, and the south is the Mediterranean Sea. So he went west. And he went first to Damascus because that's where he was converted. He went next to Arabia because that was just to the east. He went next to Jerusalem because he was in danger. Then he went next for a long time to Tarsus. You know why he went to Tarsus? Because that was his hometown. So I don't think he necessarily overthought it. He was going through open doors. And then I would say, get busy. If you're looking for the perfect spouse, you'll never find them. And if you're looking for the perfect mission field, you'll never find it. So get busy. I think that was my particular pattern. I land in 2006. Um, I get to the tarmac in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. I'll never forget. It was the last day of July. There was snow flurries on the tarmac. And I remember thinking, 
they, they took me to the wrong country. I'm in Siberia. I'm supposed to be in South Africa. Uh, no, it turns out I was in the right place. The next day, I bought a single cab, 4x4 Nissan hardbody uh, truck. They could see an American coming from a mile away. And I found out later that the vehicle was stolen. And so there I am, driving north in my stolen vehicle on N1, enthused and excited. Uh, about five hours north, uh, my teammate was already there. I stayed with him for about a week, and I said to him uh, one day, hey, let's pray. I'm going to go to a random village and start living there. And he laughed, and we prayed, and I got in my stolen vehicle, and I drove east uh, through Tsonga country. I saw huts, and I went over a hill and down, and I said, this is the place. And I came down to the valley. I turned. I didn't know any Tsonga at the time. I found out where the chief lived, um, and he showed me a place. Uh, now, he is a polygamist. He's now deceased, but he had three wives, and his second wife was living there. She was old enough to be my mother. Her name was Maria, and uh, it had no window panes. It had uh, no running water. Uh, it had just a, a, a sheet of metal over the top. Uh, it had no doors. Still to this day, the largest snake I've ever seen was renting one of those rooms, and it slithered into the hole of the floor and out the other end, and I looked at the chief, and I said, this is perfect. I'll take it. And I lived there for two years, and it helped me with a number of things. One, I really grew theologically. Uh, I just was immersed in my Bible. Uh, I was alone. I was single at the time. And then it also helped me learn the language. So Tsonga, it, it doesn't have Rosetta Stone, so you're going to have to do it old school. Uh, the, the chief's wife would cook for me vusha and tichondo. Vusha is pop. It's like, the, um, it's like the staple food of Africa. In South Africa, they use maize to make it. In other parts of Africa, they might use cassava or plantain. But it's ingenious because it's cheap and it's very filling. And in our area, uh, they eat every part of the chicken. So if, um, if you can't afford the main meat, uh, you'll eat the, the feet and the beak. Uh, they call them uh, walkie-talkies. And she would cook for me tichondo, which are chicken feet. And there I was uh, with my chicken feet and my vocabulary cards uh, for, for a year and a half, uh, studying the language. And just, it was the best place to be. I, I loved it. Those were great early days that I would not trade for anything. Fast forward, uh, less than a year later, we crossed the border into um, South Africa. Now, the Tsongas, there's about three to four million in South Africa. Uh, South Africa has 11 official languages, one of the most official languages in the world. I understand some countries like Nigeria uh, have hundreds of languages, but they're not official. South Africa has 11 official languages, and one of them, kind of toward the bottom, the least, would be uh, Shitsonga or Tsonga or Shangan, and they are the, in the northeastern region. So if you've heard of Cape Town, we're about as far from Cape Town as you can be, probably from about Florida to Wisconsin. That's the distance from us to Cape Town. We crossed the border where there's more Tsonga speakers in Mozambique. We had done some evangelistic work. We had our tents alongside the Save River. It was hot, and I came up with the very poor idea of swimming across the river 
to cool down. Um, Now, we had asked some of the fishermen who had nets earlier that day if there were any crocodiles in the river. And we thought they had said no. But our our language was not very good back then. So they may have said something like, yes. (laughs) And we missed it. So uh, there we were. I convinced my two friends, let's swim across the river, probably 50 meters across. And uh, so there we, there we were. We got in the river. And uh, I remember as soon as we got in the water, I remember thinking, this is a bad idea. I was very hot. The water was very hot and it was very dark. But by that time, I had already convinced them to go with me. So there's no going back. We started swimming. Uh, my partner, uh, teammate Seth, he has a wedding ring that's kind of loose on his finger, so he went back to take it off, and Dan and I were in the, the middle of the river. Actually, there was four of us. The only one who didn't do it was one of the villagers that came with us. He was only, the only smart one, Takalani. <laughs> and I remember about halfway across, I remember hearing a commotion and looking back and seeing terror on my friend Seth's face, and he pointed and he screamed, get out of the water, crocodile. And I remember turning to my left And there was the giant head of a crocodile slowly coming at us and then going underneath the water. It was probably, uh, you know, probably 10 yards away. And I remember thinking, this is not happening. Uh, This only happens in the movies. Uh, They're never going to find my body. Uh, My mother's going to be devastated. And while I'm thinking this, my friend starts swimming back. I just kind of froze, thinking maybe he won't see my little white legs underneath the, <laughs> the surface. Uh, halfway across, Dan, um, he, um, the, the, the croc is invisible now. We didn't know where he was. Halfway across, he bites through both of his legs and pulls him under. And this is where Providence comes in. Some of you perhaps have heard of Croc Hunter, uh, Steve Irwin, the late Steve Irwin, he had a theory that if he was ever attacked by a crocodile, that he would, um, he would stick his hand down his throat. They have some kind of mechanism. Dan somehow got his hand down his throat, and the crocodile let go. Dan pulls himself up to shore with his arms. His legs are in ribbons, and he's screaming at me, when the crocodile pulls you under, stick your hand down his throat. Well, there's a little skiff nearby. Seth jumps in. He comes over. He gets me. We're in the middle of nowhere in Masinjena. Um, we throw him in the front seat of a truck. We start driving. Uh, we put him in the front seat. I'm trying to keep Dan conscious. Seth's driving. He turns over to see Dan. He pulls down his shorts to see his wound, and you could see his inside. And uh, Seth passed out behind the wheel. So we had to throw him in the back, and we drove forward. We found an old, dilapidated uh, clinic in Masinjena. Uh, they told us he was a doctor. He wasn't a doctor, but he said he was. And he gave about 80 stitches uh, without any anesthetics to uh, Dan. We didn't know what to do. Do we move him, risk infection? We spend a day driving back through Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and down to South Africa. The Lord preserved his life. I tell that story because the news of that story got to the ears of a nurse in Nashville, who is working as a registered nurse, and in the emergency room, who is studying uh, further studies at Vanderbilt University. And her name was Melinda. 
and we started emailing. In those days, to send an email was a really big deal. I had to drive all the way to town, like 40 minutes to town, and we started emailing. And she's living in posh downtown Nashville in her own condo. I'm living with no running water and a rat-infested shack. And we started emailing. And I said, this is the girl I'm going to marry. And I had never met her. I bought a wedding ring. And I bought a plane ticket. And I told my friends, I'm not coming back until I get a ring on her finger. So I fly back to America, to Wisconsin. I get in my, I use a little Honda Civic hatchback down to Nashville. And I meet her. She came, comes from a pastor's home, great family. And two weeks later, I propose to her on Christmas Day. I then fly back to South Africa, build us a house. We had a little Bible college that we had started. Uh, they, they were sharing the house with us, finished the house. And then I flew back to Wisconsin two days before the wedding. So we were in person, this is over a span of months, but we were in person for less than three weeks before we were married. Now, many people ask me, would I recommend this? (laughs) Three weeks. And I say, no, absolutely not. Three weeks is much too short. I would recommend a month, personally. Uh, A month is a good, that's a good Shoot for the month. Uh, Go for four weeks. Maybe three weeks is a little bit on the short end. So I would go with four weeks. Men, put a ring on her finger. Uh, And the Lord's blessed us with eight children. Uh, Yes, we got busy right away. And uh, our oldest is Audrey. She's uh, 14. And I just wish I could have all of my children in, in the front row right now. Um, They are back in Wisconsin right now. Uh, This is the first time ever that we have been away from all of our children for longer than 24 hours. Uh, We just live in a little rural village. We have no family nearby, so we're with our kids, and we don't have an opportunity to be away from them. But we do have this unique opportunity. My wife is here with me with our youngest daughter, and uh, the rest of our children are back in Wisconsin. So that's how I met my wife and how we get to our particular place. Good. Wonderful. Uh, the guy that got eaten by the crocodile, he's okay? Yes, he's Just still walking. clarify that? He yes. can walk and stuff? Yes. He did leave the field soon thereafter. Yeah. Um, but uh, He gave his legs for your marriage, basically, is you what you were way. saying, I you think. You could put it that way. So, no, yes. it's, it's uh, God works in mysterious ways. Yes. Um, Okay, let's, let's talk about, I, I like that you, you told us how you acquired a wife. You, you've had plenty of time to get to know each other. And so that, that's the great thing about marriage. And so I, I approve of the Paul method of dating and courtship. Um, you know, I'm, there's no discovery anymore in marriage. It's like you have to yeah. know, you have to discover them physically, relationally, everything before marriage. It's not marriage the, is a great adventure. Yeah. No, it's a great it. time. Yeah. To learn about your wife. Yes, you want to make sure there's the foundation, but there's a lot of discovery that happens in marriage. It's been a reward. Love it. Paul, talk about John Payton. Talk about your your relationship with him, 
You wrote a book, came out a few years ago, published by Banner of Truth, uh, a biography of the man. He wrote a famous autobiography that I know you were immersed in for a long time. And uh, he's been an inspiration to so many missionaries. And I know a lot of young people have read his his biography. Talk about your relationship with him and what you learned in that that journey of, of kind of bringing that to another generation. Uh, I believe the last edition of John Payton's autobiography, it's actually an autobiography, not a biography, which is, I think is important because it's very difficult to write an honest autobiography. You're either going to try to be too humble and leave important things out, or you're going you're gonna to lean towards pride and boasting. Wow, if you, can, if, if you want a great example of an autobiography, I mean, that's got to be in the top of all time. Uh, last published, or at least revised in 1898, it's 500 pages, small print, and over 100 years old. It cannot be topped. It is one of the classics, one of the great uh, missionary accounts of all time. Please read it. However, I know that there's not going to be a lot of people in the pew who are going to read a 500-page book with small print that was published over 100 years ago. And I thought, this is a great story that needs to not only pull from the autobiography, but then just pull from all these other accounts. Back in the day, all of the missionaries kept journals. So it's just like you go on and on. Uh, John Payton was a, uh, grew up in a great home in the, the missionary century. This is in the 1800s. This is just when missionary zeal is just pulsing through Europe. Uh, you have Cary, you have the, uh, the St. Andrews Seven, uh, you have Livingston. Most of the, if you're ever in doubt of where a missionary came from, just get, guess Scotland, because the great missionaries came from Scotland. He was from Scotland. Uh, he was a successful missionary, as I mentioned before, uh, in Glasgow. And he, he sets a great example because he wasn't an idiot. He was gifted. We often do that today with our missionaries. Look, if you can't evangelize now in your own language... How are you going to do it in a foreign language? If you're not a hard worker now, how are you going to do it when there's little accountability? If you're not a good preacher now, how are you going to do it in a totally different culture? We need to send our best to the mission field. John Payton was the, the highest star in the evangelical universe in that particular area, and he went to the cannibals of the New Hebrides. And before he left, he was told one of the great lines of a deacon who said, the cannibals, the cannibals, You'll be eaten by the cannibals. And he famously replied to this man, your body is well advanced in years now, soon to be eaten by worms. And it makes little difference to me if I'm eaten by worms or by cannibals because one day my body will be resurrected as our Lord Jesus Christ. And he went. He went to Tana, uh, married someone. uh, He was actually single. One of the rare missionaries that went in his early 30s Important to go to the mission field young. Look, there's exceptions, but we generally tell people, if you haven't learned the language by age 30, you can pretty much kiss it goodbye. Because our ability to learn languages wanes as we get older. He was one of the rare missionaries that went in his early 30s, married a 19-year-old, had a baby early on. Uh, Within a few months of getting to Tana, she dies, the baby dies, he digs one grave, buries them arm in arm in the same grave and said, I almost went mad beside this lonely grave. But he stayed for four years, basically running for his life. The book really reads like a thriller. And some of you maybe have heard of uh, 
Piper's brief account of this, I think that's why we get Patton, because he pronounced it Patton, but anyone from Scotland will vigorously tell you it's Peyton. And uh, that, that account is great. Listen to, to Piper's brief account on, on Peyton. He's there for four years, leaves, remarries, come back, comes back to Aniwa for 15 years. I wanted to tell that account. I wanted to bring in his wife, Maggie Peyton, his second wife. She kind of gives the high-def color version of their life. Peyton's the classic Scottish. He's, he's humble. He doesn't want to talk a lot about his family. He doesn't talk about himself. Peyton's wife, Maggie, it's still in print. It's called Letters and Sketches. It's still in print by Banner of Truth. She talks about walks on the beach, and she talks about sunsets, and she talks about kind of those familial items. You put those two books together, I try to do the best I could to, to tell that brief story of Peyton. Great missionary, godly man, wonderful children, long beard, which the great missionaries all seem to have. Uh, they measured their beard length by their belt buckle. And we're just uh, a great example. And so that's why I told the story of Peyton. Yeah, love it. He had a dog, too. He's a dog guy. Uh, you guys have a dog? Yes, Smith & Wesson. Okay, good. Two German shepherds. I like it. Um, he had like a tiny dog, I think, right? Didn't he have like a Scottish terrier or yes. something? Yes. Yeah, Clutha or something like that. Yes, the name of the ship. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Uh, you got to read this book. You can get it in the bookstore, Paul's Paul's biography, or you can get the two volume uh, autobiography by by Peyton, and it's uh, it's well worth reading. You've heard me tell stories from it before. Um, let's go back to the song of people and give us a glimpse of what ministry is like today. What are your present challenges and blessings that you face ministering to uh, people in in uh, your village? What's it like these days? It's hard. Um... All of our ministry is in Tonga. Uh, we do a lot of open-air preaching. So we have our, our little uh, local church there in the village. We, we are not just after planting churches. We want to, impl- uh, we want to plant indigenous churches, and that's, that's really important. Indigenous means uh, literally living from within. So just like how do you know when your child is able to, to leave the home, well, when they're able to live on their own. How do you know when a church, how do you know when a pastor or when a missionary can leave that church plant? You know when it can live on its own. How do you know when the church can live on its own? Historically and biblically, we've typically used the three selves, self-supporting, self-propagating, and self-governing. This is a very important part of missions that really has been lost. Uh, I, I feel that in missions today, we just we just pump a lot of foreign funds into a particular ministry, and it's propped up by funds. But we're, we're after planting a church that is indigenous. That is, it can evangelize on its own. It has its own governing body, and it's able to sustain itself. Well, that takes a lot of time. Uh, a lot of our church people we met when they were kids. So that's our local church plant. And then we have uh, in the surrounding villages, uh, we have a lot of open-air preaching, so we'll go to a village, we'll put out our material in Tsonga, uh, we'll take our guitar, we'll sing, and then we'll gather a group of people and we'll preach, uh, we'll preach to them the gospel, and we'll go there week after week. Uh, we have a Christian school called Misebe, uh, which we started recently. Misebe is the Tsonga word for arrows. Uh, Psalm 127 says children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. By the way, 
we're always looking for, um, we're looking for help. We need teachers. Uh, we have, in some ways, almost like a, we could maybe say a poor man's Labrie. Perhaps some of you have heard of Labrie with Francis Schaeffer. And they had kind of a, uh, a place where people from around the world who either were Christians but were struggling or were not Christians but were seeking and they wanted to be discipled, they would, they would go to the mountains and they would be discipled. And we've had the opportunity of having a lot of people come to our ministry, whether from South Africa or Germany or from the U.S. It might mean helping tutor our children. It might be teaching at the school. If you want to see another culture, if you want to know if you can learn another language, if you want to see how you uh, relate with someone from a different place, I would encourage you um, to visit us. I put some of our prayer cards on the table over there. We have a, a website called betweentwocultures.com. A lot of videos, a lot of articles that you can read about. Uh, we also have a ministry called Gym Camp. G-Y-M stands for Godly Young Men. Uh, we're just very concerned about how many young men are effeminate. Uh, the, the idea of prolonged adolescence. I think it's worldwide, but especially in South Africa, uh, there are the least two-parent homes in the world in South Africa. A lot of the young men are raised in a home where they only hear a female voice. And so we wanted to start a camp. It's called Gali Young Men. We'll teach them a lot about masculinity, but then we'll teach them practical, practical steps, how to change your car oil, uh, how to back up a trailer, uh, how to shoot a gun, things like that, teaching them masculine things. We have a number of other ministries, social mini- mini- uh, media, but primarily we're after establishing local churches, uh, preaching the gospel in their own language, not cutting corners, uh, in their language, slow evangelism. Uh, sometimes it takes two years sitting across from someone and, and until they get it. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Let's conclude with a word to college students on how they can be connected, uh, not just to, to what God's doing in your area, but how can they be better connected in just in their ongoing lives to missions and to uh, a focus on what God's doing around the world? You mentioned Joshua Project. That would be a good example. Yeah. We talked about missionary biographies. G- give them kind of a, just some, some steps that they could take to engage in missions in their lives right now? What would you recommend? Yeah, that's a good question. So first I'd say get involved in your local church. Get busy in your local church and try everything. Where are you gifted? Well, maybe if you don't know, just get busy. Try this, try this. Uh, I would encourage you to get busy serving in a place where the people you're serving don't look like you. That's kind of a a baby step for cross-cultural evangelism. I was only given two or three words to define missions. I would define it as cross-cultural evangelism. Now, missions is more than that, but it's never less than that. Uh, We're not all missionaries. If we we say everyone is a missionary, it's like highlighting the whole page. You're going to lose the significance of it. Uh, Someone needs to cross a culture to give the gospel. And if we call everyone a missionary, then it gets lost. It's like calling everyone a pastor or everyone a father, everyone a mother, and then it gets lost. So get involved in your local church. Second, there's so many great resources. So he mentioned uh, Joshua Project. That's a place to go online where you can see where the most, the least reached people groups are. Our family prays uh, for, for a particular people, the Yao in southern 
uh, Malawi. Maybe the Lord will take us there one day. That came through research. Operation World is a great book to be able to pray for the nations. But if people ask me the greatest books to help you on missions, it's not a theological treatise on missions. If I had to choose one of those, Paul the Missionary by Schnabel, outstanding. But that's not the best. The best are missionary biographies because biographies do two things. They not only inform, but they inspire. Isn't that what we want? We want to be inspired. So let me give you a few examples of the great missionary biographies. Hudson Taylor's two-volume biography, Can't Beat It. If it's too big for you, the abbreviated version, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. You can read To the Golden Shore about Anarim Judson. Uh, You can go to the Alka Five or about Jim Elliott, uh, who were speared to death in Ecuador. Uh, My favorite biography of all time, it's difficult to find, but it's called The Father of Faith Missions. It's the story of Anthony Norris Groves, who was the father-in-law of George Mueller. I would buy that. Uh, If guys, if you're interested, if you have a wife, buy for your wife. If you have a girlfriend, that would be a great gift. When I was pursuing my wife, uh, the first thing I bought her was John Payton's autobiography because I wanted to see how she would respond because this is, I mean, this is who I am. You take, it's all or nothing. And I wanted to see how she would respond. Now, if you get this book for her, not only is it great, but it's very difficult to find. It's not in print, but if you work hard online, you can find it. It's inspiring. Uh, see if you can find that book about Groves and so many others. Uh, I think I wrote a, uh, a post one time recently about 12 books on on missions that I would recommend. You can track that down. So I would say missionary biographies and get busy uh, in your local church. And then we live in an era today where, look, missionaries of old, you took your coffin with you. When you left for the mission field, you were never coming back. Um, Adoniram Judson wrote a letter proposing marriage to Anne Hasseltine, but he first wrote a letter to Anne's husband, to her father, and he said, are you prepared never to see your daughter again on this earth? That's our core. Those missionaries were amazing. We don't live in that era today. We have Zoom, and we have WhatsApp, and we have Jets. So take advantage of that. It might mean going to a mission field for three months and seeing if you can handle it or going over to help the missionaries, and maybe you'll go over full-time. So short-term missions, get involved in your local church read a lot of great missionary resources. Good. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure, and it's just what you said. It's both informative and inspirational. Let me pray for you and your family, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for this time we've had with our friend Paul, and we pray for him and Melinda and their their children, uh, their church, the ministries that we've heard about going on uh, even now. I know that there's faithful people watching over uh, that those ministries, as they're in the season this summer of uh, preparation, of, of rest, of, of fundraising, I pray that you would meet all their needs, that you would give them a wonderful summer together as a family as they grow in their dependence on you, and uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in and through them. God, I pray for those who listen to this conversation today, uh, that you would help us all to respond to it as you would see fit, a greater devotion to Jesus, a more intense desire to make him known and to 
uh, be about your work. May we not be lazy or indifferent towards the plight of the souls in this world who are apart from you, uh, but give us that kind of passion to make known the matchlessness of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. The gospel is our only hope, and so I thank you for my brother and for faithful missionaries around the world who are preaching that gospel. May you attend their ministry with blessing and with power as they preach the gospel and see you build your church and occupy uh, the hearts of men with the glory of Christ for now and for all eternity. So thank you, Father, for this time. Uh, Bless this family as they continue to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.